Today we're working through the very end of the book of Ephesians, and I couldn't help but think while we were talking about marriage and while we were talking about um, child dedication, I couldn't help but think to myself that apart from marriage, the, the only thing that has felt that has made me feel more lost and more incompetent is being a parent. It is such a shocker to discover how much brainless, empty confusion that a small child can provoke me to. It is amazing to consider how many... You ever been around somebody who runs a major corporation and it just dawns on you for a split second that they're, they're not really running their own kids. You ever, you ever thought, anyone ever felt like that? You, you're like, I run a lot of stuff. How come this three-year-old is in charge of me? I don't understand it. Um, in the book of Ephesians, Paul describes how Jesus has been sent to reconcile people out of their lostness and also to rescue them from the law And what he did was he erased the separation between insider and outsider, and he brought together one new family that came to life based on their faith in Jesus. Not by keeping the law, not by being an Israelite who was chosen sovereignly, uh, providentially by God, but just by submitting themselves in faith to Jesus, he started a whole new family. And then, with the power of the Holy Spirit, he has enabled them and empowered them to, to shine brightly as a contrast in the world. To be a contrast community brought together by Jesus under his authority and full of the indwelling Spirit to grow and learn and contrast in the world. And he didn't just do that so that we could shine brightly in the world with individual personal faith, but the story of God is powerful enough to transform our story. Not just transform our heart, but to transform the everyday life of our home and the everyday life of living among our neighborhood. And today in the first part of chapter 6, we'll look and see how Paul describes the gospel that transforms our lives into, into a new human and to join a new family transforms our everyday life of, of family. And then next week we'll talk about how it transforms the everyday life of work. Family and work. So specifically today we'll kind of lean into what's said to children and what's said to parents. And you might think, Uh, And and I would understand if you thought so. I don't have kids or I'm not raising kids anymore. Uh, Maybe you're a grandparent and, and, and this perhaps might inspire you to a picture in which you can help your kids. Because I know your adult kids who have their own kids often turn to you and say, I'm at a loss. I need your coaching help and your wisdom. Right? Don't they? No? They don't do that? Okay. So... Maybe God will inspire them to ask, and you'll have a clear picture of what it could look like, and uh, you'll find them inspired with some new level of, um, of, of humility. Um, also, if you are pre-married, this might help you envision what it could look like to raise a family that's, that's um, biblically um, lined up with this new community and this new faith. Um, so this new human is a contrast community. And 
In Ephesians, we learn about parenting God's way. Parenting God's way. For some of you, it'll also kind of trigger why you feel the way you feel when you feel like somebody needs a little bit of help, and uh, here is some ways in which we learn that help. Here in Ephesians, we're going to see kind of a big picture, and one of the big pictures we're going to get is this. In Jesus, every human being in any authoritative or subordinate role or relationship has equal dignity, equal value, and equal importance. And Paul goes on to describe how the equality of authority and subordinate is, um, is, is protected and promoted by the gospel so there's no more uh, um, higher level of dignity, value, and importance of an employer or a parent. In fact, uh, he addresses here some very specific things. Through the gospel that has reconciled all people together from every single uh, uh, um, role and responsibility in life, This new human identity is so deep, it's so thorough, uh, that it even transforms the way authorities exercise power over subordinates and how subordinates respond to positional authority. So, he describes that this is so profound. What the gospel does is that the gospel provides a brand new way for those who are in authority to lead and those who are subordinate to follow. There's a contrasting way to lead and a contrasting way to follow that is unique to God's people. It is unique to this new community, this new um, humanity that He has created, the new authority. Now, in the old uh, world that Paul is writing to in the book of Ephesians, all the authorities were the same. They were men, they were husbands, they were fathers, they were parents, and they were employers, or in this text he calls them masters for the context of their culture. And all the subordinates were the same. The subordinates in this particular culture were women, wives, children, and employees. And what Paul says is, this new way to be human transforms the way that the authority exercises their authority and also transforms the way that the subordinate responds to the authority. There's a new way to respond to authority and there's a new way to respond um, to leading and being subordinate. So, um, our new humanity transforms our family. This is where we'll start with the authority and subordinate transformation starts right here in our family with children and their fathers or children and their parents is where this transformation begins. Children enhance their own lives with an attitude of humble obedience and honor. Cue all of the parents nudging their children to pay attention. But Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians that God has inspired him to tell the children something vital, something important. And this is not just for young children, this is also for adult children. He says there's a specific way that the gospel transforms your life as a child in your response to your parents. And he says that your obedience, children... This is so important. Your obedience is a surface, invisible sign of trust. Not just that you trust your parents, but that you trust the God who put your parents in authority over you. Obedience is a sign of trust. 
I can't tell you how many times in my home, in our minivan, we've asked our kids to do something when they were little, and when they were disobeying, my wife or I would jump all the way to questioning why they don't trust their parents. And we'd catch them off guard, and, and, and they'd start mumbling and grumbling about how just doing this little disobedience somehow translates into this dramatic question of why don't you trust me? And we see as parents, and we believe this is biblical, a connection between the obedience of a child and their expression of trust that the parents know best. And I know this is going to be true. For those of you who are children still living under the authority of your parents in your own home, I know this is going to be tragic. But somehow, in some way, Paul is expressing through the book of Ephesians that God accepts from your parent the answer, do it because I said so. God accepts that answer. Probably the most infuriating phrase I ever heard as a child from my parents. And I just want to know why. And they would say, because I said so. And I think to myself, what if I don't care what you say? Just think to myself. Never say it. Just think to myself, what if I don't care? Why would you say that? Now, have you found, parents, that it's helpful to know why? It's helpful to explain it right? And I've always said this. If you want your kids to change their behavior, you can demand, because I said so, changes in behavior. But if you want, to, if you want them to understand your convictions, there's a little bit of explanation. And also, as you're explaining your convictions, you get a chance to go, do I really even believe this now that I'm trying to explain it to them? Um, but anyways, so this, because I said so, actually... Um, is enough because if you're a child, you're submitting yourself to your parents in a certain way. Children, obey your parents because, here's the reason, you belong to the Lord and submitting yourself to the parents is the right thing to do. What does that mean? It, it means that it doesn't matter why they're saying it. What it means is it doesn't matter if what they're saying is true or it's not true or it's best or not best. Or what they're asking you to do is not morally superior than what you desired to do, right? You think to yourself, I don't want to clean my room. They're telling me I have to clean my room. Is a clean room better than a messy room? There is no moral uh, convictions, I don't think, that anyone can uh, um, really press on you. One of my favorite uh, lines about making your bed comes from Jim Gaffigan. And Jim Gaffigan said, if I don't tie my shoes after slipping them off, why would I make my bed after getting up? I'm going to get right back into, I'm going to get right back into them. Isn't that wise? That's really good. Write that, write that down. Kids, write that down. So um, children obeying their parents, they're doing so because they belong to the Lord. They're not doing so because their parents are right, because they have the deepest and most authentic and godly convictions, or because somehow they can prove your, their case in the house court. There is a decision to submit because they belong to the Lord, and all God's children submit to what God has asked them to do. They choose to do the right thing. Because obedience pleases God. Obedience doesn't just please mom and dad, doesn't just please grandma and grandpa, and all the other authorities that God has placed over a child. Also, obedience pleases God. And for adult children, there's a wider aim. There's a wider um, attitude. 
There's a wider approach if you're an adult child towards your parents, and it's this. Paul goes on to say, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. He's quoting an Old Testament description of what the incentive is for children to honor their parents. And the idea here is that the relationship of a parent and the child is, after marriage, the most powerful illustration of the loving relationship between God and His people. And the word honor, or aspiring, or attributing value and worth, that the word honor means respect, and this respect is a commodity that's spent and it's exchanged. You could also translate it as fear or reverence. Have reverence. Have uh, um, ascribe honor to the role of the parent or the person of the parent as an adult. And for adults, this means respecting our parents' wisdom. I joked earlier about how few adult parents turn to their parents and say, can you give me, what's your insight on this child situation? What's your insight on this part of planning and leading a family? What's your insight? And there's some level of respect that's expressed just by asking and heeding their advice. It also means, expressing honor also means caring for them, spending time, visiting, make time, sacrificing, providing practical care, and sometimes even financial help. I've heard this many, many times. I experienced it myself. It's amazing how quickly you leave parenthood as you're raising your small children and then find yourself in a position where your adult parents need a unique kind of care, presence, help with um, some of the daily living chores, some of the daily living demands and responsibilities. And Paul is expressing here that there's, if you're all done obeying your parents because you're out of the house, then the attitude widens and shifts, and now it becomes a relationship of honor, respect, fear, and, and, um, and you'll notice here in the text, perhaps, if you keep reading, he doesn't qualify that. He doesn't say if they're deserving of it. He doesn't say if they've made all the right choices and made all the right decisions and helped you in every way you needed it. He doesn't say that there are times in which you can dishonor them if they've been dishonorable. And I know many of you have already experienced the fruit of honoring your parents who have already expressed that they know they don't. They've made enough mistakes that it pains them to think that they deserve in any way honor or respect. If you choose to honor your parents, you will extend and enhance your own life. Now, in the context of the Old Testament where this is being uh, quoted, the idea was that as long as you are honoring and respecting your parents, you will be within their household and you will position yourself for an inheritance of their wealth. And to the degree in which you dishonor them and disrespect them, you will be estranged from the family and all of that family wealth will be on the line. You'll be in jeopardy of losing. And so what Paul is saying here is he's like, remember back when you got the instructions from God to his people when he said, respect and honor your parents and your life will be greatly enhanced and improved because you will increase the likeliness that you will be able to be close and enjoy the fruit of all of the blessings that God has poured out on your parents and their family wealth and their family favor relationally. In other words, it's much more difficult for someone estranged from their parents to to live a life of enhancement and length and extension than it is for somebody who is in right relationship with their parents. 
full enjoyment of any family inheritance and material comforts and relational joy is very possible. And it's possible through honor. So, even if fathers get less time with the children in some circumstances, even if um, you came from a family where the father was a little bit of a, I don't know how to, I don't want to exaggerate this, not really a visitor, but maybe a, mostly a spectator in the life of discipline. In fact, this would be funny. How many of you grew up in a household where mom would say, you're going to be in big trouble. Wait until your father gets home. Anybody grow up in a house like that? I mean, I remember my mom not needing to wait one second. Not one second. One of her favorite lines to me as a teenager, and I've said this many times, is this. She used to hold up, hold up I don't know why, our fingers actually <laughs> bend the same way. My mom's finger bent this exact same way as mine. She would hold it up and look at me like this, and I don't know why she would hold it. Like, she didn't point. It wasn't like an accusation, but she would hold it up and she would say, Daniel? So my teenage years. She would say, I'm on my way out the door. Maybe she doesn't know where exactly I'm going to end up, but she would say to me, be sure your sins will find you out. And I got to tell you, the tactic of guilt works. It is powerful, isn't it? I don't necessarily know that my mom was using guilt in that tactic, but I kind of, I mean, it jarred me a little bit. Here's what my mom was saying. My mom was saying, I can parent you and I can supervise you and I can put up the boundaries and I can give you the instructions that you're going to need to go out there in the world and be... Uh, free of all kinds of other pain and heartbreak and suffering and so on. But at some point, I accept that I am going to let you go out of my sight and turn you over to the powerful, supremely eternal, and effective, and deep-acting role of the Holy Spirit. And while I didn't care for that tactic as a teenager, i got to tell you, as a parent, I thank God for that. I thank God that at some point my crooked finger comes to an end. But God's powerful, loving kindness and His strong, wise right hand expressed through the Holy Spirit never comes to an end. His finger of love and, and, and parental guidance is supremely long and supremely able. And he has empowered parents to be an extension of that. Um, So look what he says to parents. He says fathers. He starts with fathers. And this is important because don't forget we're in a a Scripture text here where Paul is talking to how the Gospel transforms your role as an authority. As your role as an authority. And in this particular um, culture, the authority that he's aiming at here is the patriarchal father authority. who would often, by the way, be very harsh, very domineering, and very um, forceful. And we'll see what Paul says. So listen to where he starts. This is really incredible because he starts with do not. He turns to the fathers and he says, do not. What does he say? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. Do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. So obviously here, there was a, um, 
reason to say this. Obviously, Paul is describing here, why would he start with do not provoke? Why would he start with the way you treat them is important? Um, Because in their traditional Middle Eastern patriarchal men were enabled to control and to dominate and to intimidate with their authority over all subordinates, and uh, not the least of which was their own child. So Paul is saying here that when Jesus saves your soul, when you become a part of His family, you have a new way, fathers, of leading and loving and disciplining and raising your children. And you abandon fear, intimidation, control, and domination. And you are very careful not to provoke them by the way that you're treating them. And you can imagine that the subordinate child would very quickly grow if they're being controlled and dominated and abused. They would quickly grow um, uh, a level of anger and resentment towards their authority. And Paul is saying here through the Ephesians, the letter of the Ephesians to the fathers, that fathers, you should use restraint in how you motivate your child to respond. It's not uncommon for men to be hardwired to have one strong emotion and every other emotion is squeezed through the, 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 the filter of anger. And then obviously uh, we know that they're being counseled here to use restraint in how you motivate your child to respond to their God-given authority. Someone once told me that it's important to see kids as if they were watermelon seeds. Are you curious to hear the rest? And here's what they said. This, I've never forgotten this. They, they said, kids are like watermelon seeds. You're going to have to keep your thumb on them, but you have to be very careful not to press too hard. Because the harder you press, the further that watermelon seed springs when it flies away from you. In other words, you can press, but at some point or other, you press too hard and off they go, out they go, away they go. And they'll go as far as you were putting that overextended, abundant force on that child. So, what does that mean? It means a loving, firm, caring thumb on all our watermelon seeds that God has given us. But being very aware that it's possible to provoke them to anger so that they are estranged from us in ways that are heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. Avoid provoking them to anger. Now, sometimes this anger comes from humiliation, and it comes through using intimidating force or inconsistent involvement all in and then all out and then all in and then all out. Sometimes it's impossible demands that the child eventually realizes they're never going to be able to um, achieve. Sometimes it's just incoherent expectations where the child just does not ever really catch on to what the expectations are. Also, it's an insensitivity to the different stages uh, uh, and the different seasons of a child's immaturity or a a child's developmental um, progress or maybe even their weaknesses or their fears or their needs or their personality style. Any of you parents remember how shocking it was to learn that your second child had a different personality style than your first child? 
and you were like, I was just kind of getting the hang of this. Then you have to go and do this whole new personality, new character thing. Dads, we recognize there's different seasons, there's different phases, different personality styles, different developmental stages that they're in. Why would an otherwise loving and responsible parent provoke their child to anger? Why would an otherwise reasonable parent allow themselves to be provoked to anger? Well, it's something called idols. Something called idols. Paul, uh, uh, not Paul Tripp, his brother, uh, Ted Tripp. Ted Tripp writes about this in Shepherding a Child's Heart. These idols are something... Uh, by the way, when you think of idols, if you're new to the Christian faith, it's easy to think idols like golden calf. No, these are idols that are deep in our own heart. These are things that we love and we crave and we adore so much we're willing to sacrifice good things, better things, some of the best things to make sure that we have them. And these idols get wed so deeply, so subconsciously in our hearts that we're sacrificing anything and everything to have them or to keep them. Here's three common examples that interrupt our parenting. Comfort, success, and control. So let me describe what this means. So if your idol that you are subconsciously worshiping, maybe even not knowing it, is comfort, then it's very likely that your child's misbehavior your child's rebellion or your child's bad attitude angers you so much because it disrupts your deepest desire and your deepest and greatest treasure being comfortable. And their misbehavior, their rebellion, and their bad attitude is disrupting all the comfort that you need to the degree in which it creates this anger and this um, lashing out. Another easy one is success, right? If success is my idol, then my child's behavior, rebellion, and bad attitude angers me. And it angers me because it reflects poorly on my parenting. I mean, haven't we all been in the grocery store and our child is doing naughty, naughty things? And the first stop it doesn't work, the second stop it doesn't work, the third threat doesn't work. One of my favorite threats is, I'll leave this grocery store right now. And I always think to myself, the child's like, boom, nailed it, let's get out of here. And maybe, maybe some of you have experienced this too, and this is just certainly one of many, many ways this can show up, where all of a sudden you start to feel your blood pressure go up, and it's not because the child won't submit to your God-given authority, it's because you recognize and realize that at some point people have started to look at you, and they've started to think things about you. They've started to make notes for their sermon illustration coming up on Sunday. And here's the idea. If success is my idol, I am willing to lash out in any kind of anger. I'm willing to lose my mind and do things I regret, but I'm willing to do it because my success, my reputation as a successful parent is on the line in the views of other people. And so now I abandon sound, biblical, loving discipline, and now I'm in panic mode. And my panic mode is to get the child to change their behavior so people don't think I'm a crummy, I'm a crummy parent, right? So, 
At some, to some degree, our children are acting like children, and it shouldn't surprise us, but to another degree, something is happening in our heart that's generating an unbiblical, unreasonable, angry response. Are you with me? And um, I, remember, I remember one time doing this series years and years ago. We did this series. Uh, we were helping parents through this series, Shepherding a Child's Heart, and we got to the part where um, we were at the very beginning where Ted Tripp was writing, and he was saying, a lot of parenting is the naughtiness of the child, but sometimes the struggle with parenting is the naughtiness of the parent. And he went on to talk about all the idols that kind of whatever. And I remember um, years ago, one couple saying, um, well, that's our last session because we didn't come here to get blamed for all of our, bad beha- all of our child's bad behavior. And I was like, darn, that's... Not what we're aiming for. What we're aiming for is for all of us who are adults and belong to Jesus say, is there anything in my own heart that's creating this distress in my own home where if my heart was submitted to Jesus, we could bring new health and new growth and new life and new engagement and new direction and even perhaps new behaviors and patterns in my own home because I start with not the heart of my child, but I start with the heart of the parent. And I bring myself before God and I bring these idols here. I mean, how many times can we hear ourselves lash out at our kids and the reason we're lashing out is because I just want peace and quiet and then explode on that four-year-old for being disruptive, right? Right? And so rather than perhaps approaching it one way, we approach it by losing them. Then we've got the other one, which is control, right? Where someone's child's misbehavior, rebellion, and bad attitude angers them because it agitates their worst fear, which is losing control. I remember when we first lost control of our very first child for their very first meltdown, public meltdown, um, and I don't know where kids learn this. Where do kids learn if they let their bot, their bot, if they go on the floor and you pick them up, and if they just let themselves go like fluid limp, that you can't hold them? I don't know where they learn that. The child like is flailing all over. It's like holding on to a dolphin with no spine, right? It's slippery. And you ever done that? It's terrible. Don't do it. All over the place. Down they go. And I remember thinking to myself, just get them out of here. Get them out of here. Let's get them up and get them out of here. And I remember at the time feeling so humiliated because I didn't have control over that little one. And it's so disheartening to feel like my life in that moment is being run by that little one, and this little one is running me right out of the public scene. And sometimes... This is what's agitating us is we are serving the idol of control. Sometimes it's serving the idol of success. Sometimes the idol of comfort. Scotty Smith, who's a commentator on, uh, he's a pastor and commentator, wrote some of our favorite um, books. He says it this way, I don't push my child to conform outwardly for my benefit. I urge her to come to Jesus for her benefit. And I look for evidence of inward change, right? So I'm not forcing my child to modify their behavior for my benefit, but I am urging 
them to find themselves submitting to their parents, submitting to Jesus, looking for fruit in their own life. So, real quick warning. It's also possible to swing so far the other way, right? All the way from anger and lashing out and harshness, all the way to um, so much license that there is no authority in the home. There is no spiritual authority in the home. The unintended consequence. In fact, if you read up on the self-esteem movement, the people who founded the self-esteem movement will say, this got way out of hand. This went way beyond what we ever intended. And the self-esteem originators, the founders, they say it was never intended to be a movement where we teach the child to feel or to believe that they are the center of their own universe and that everyone and everything revolves around them. They also said we never intended for parents to focus their efforts on never provoking, never allowing, uh, never um, letting their children face negative emotions or never um, ever letting them feel bad about what they've done. So parents, they say, should focus their efforts on, on um, always protecting them from ultimate damaging experience, right? Fe- uh, failure or feeling bad about themselves or what they've done, and um, never provoking their own negative emotions. And, and even the uh, self-esteem founder said, we never intended to go that far. Never intended to protect all kids from negative emotions. Never intended to promote their um, constantly feeling good about everyone and everything, especially themselves, all the time. So, instead of provoking them, then what do we do? Instead of provoking them, rather bring them up with a discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Rather bring them up. Be engaged in dis- discipline and instruction. And this instruction and this discipline comes from the Lord. It is God-ordained to be a home and a house of discipline, Right? And the, the home and house of discipline is doing so because this is a house of love. And we have seen and learned so many ways, right? We, we hold on to and retain the confidence and the convictions that it's loving to provide a consistent and corrective discipline in our families. It is proper to own those convictions, just as our Heavenly Father promised that He's going to discipline us. And he does so because of evidence of his love. I'll never forget one time when I was youth pastoring, I was dropping off a teenager. We were um, at some event pretty late, and I was dropping the student off. He was a senior in high school, and I got to talking to him about um, his family life, and he was telling me about how difficult his family life was, and his, um, his mom was really struggling and, and was a single parent and was out um, sometimes all night, sometimes several nights, sometimes weekends at a time. He didn't know where his mother was. And I said, so what do you, at this stage of your life, what is it that you feel like you need from your mom? And he said, oh, that's very clear. It's very simple. I'd love for my mom to just give me a curfew. And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like a senior in high school. And what he meant to say was that that curfew would indicate to me that she's alert to what could happen to me if I'm not home at a certain time, and also that uh, she wanted me to be home and be safe, and without a curfew, I have real questions about my mother's affection for me, care for me. It's profound, right? And um, 
Some of you who are kids are like, I, I've never prayed that. I've never asked that. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. <laughs> he crazy. Um, so God disciplines us. He knows we need clear boundaries. And the heart of discipline is this. I am willing and unafraid to discipline my child when necessary, and I do it out of love. And I do it out of love for their interests in mine, not out of frustration or to assert my superiority and in a posture of an under-authority, right? I am disciplining my children knowing I'm under the discipline and authority of God who must submit, and I must submit to my own Father's discipline. And all of that, we know, comes from the Lord. So, um, and God has this format of discipline. If you look at this in the Scripture, and that book I referred to bases a lot of uh, his principles in teaching, parenting, shepherding a child's heart, what he says is God has a means by which he disciplines us. He starts with pointing out what sin is, right? Selfishness is sin, and he points it out, and he describes what the expectations are, and if you fall short of the mark, it's sin, where you treasure myself above God, and that's called sin, so he, God starts with recognizing sin. And then pointing out the lies that are under the surface that are causing that sin, the lie that is under every sin that's in the heart. And then God brings us to the point where we accept consequences. And the consequences are never shame. It's never Him withdrawing from us and isolating us and leaving us on our own to figure stuff out or or how we're going to get back to God. But instead... We see consequences as the resulting impact. And while we're dealing with those consequences, if God's disciplining us, He's right there with us. He's fully engaged and He is helping us along in His loving kindness to deal with and face and carry that consequence. And then God always works towards full restoration, restoring affection, restoring intimacy, and staying close in full restoration. And that's how God disciplines us. Point out the sin, Identify the lie, accept the consequence, and then always work towards restoration. And it's the same for bringing that to our children. Teach the child that they make selfish choices, which is sin, to love them with correction and affection, and then bring restoration that, cause, that, that takes a lot of work. Haven't you noticed that if you do the restoration part, parents, it takes three times longer, perhaps, in, on occasion to do that than it does the first part, identifying sin? Because in the first case, we just want to modify the behavior. But so much more and so much more important than that is, is, is um, growing a, a restoration in full discipline and instruction. Discipline and instruction means nourishing. It means um, nurturing children. It implies long-term relational care, taking on and owning the well-being of that child. It's not rapid behavior modification, which is so tempting and so easy to fall into that trap. And, and, and whole life care is how a monster of a four-year-old becomes a charming young adult. Ongoing, loving discipline and instruction. And by the way, instruction is unemotional, corrective discipline. Unemotional. Um, and correction is way beyond punitive, right? Um, I'm also uh, very much aware that there was a generation in my household that discipline was just, uh, you could picture this, right? Picture this in the minivan. Discipline was just mom or dad trying to get their hand far enough back to swat one of us. They wanted the behavior to stop. 
Swing and swat, right? It was just punitive. Stop it or you're going to get a zinger stinger. And wherever it lands, it lands by God's will and His direction. But this, this kind of discipline or instruction is really, it's correction and it's way beyond punitive. Here's some of the basics. Um, some of the basics are, are really simple. With discipline and instruction, the basics are really are simple, and it includes correcting behavior. What does that mean? It means clarifying communication, always being clear with what the expectations are. What is your vision of uh, what's expected of our child? A few simple expectations. And then consistency. I'm engaged no matter how hard or how tired I am or how hard the situation is. Then I have calm correction. I heard one, uh, one um, parenting author, teacher, leader says it this way, that when we are correcting our child, it is possible to think of ourselves in bringing this correction the same way a cop brings a traffic ticket. You have violated the law. It's my duty to inform you that you need correction. In order to help this correction to occur, there's a consequence called a ticket. I put your name on it. This is for you. And then the child starts to say, this isn't fair, I can't believe this is, that you're doing this to me, and why didn't you, and how come you never, and what does the cop say back? Tell the judge. Tell the judge, and then off they go. Right? What, a, what a beautiful picture of paradise for parents. <laughs> paradise. Just bring the ticket. And um, it doesn't have to be all hypercharged with negative emotion. And then lastly, consequences, Right? Wise timing on bringing down the, 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 um, the consequences. If they're young, it might be very quick and immediate, so they can attach the, the sin to the, um, the actual crime itself and, 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 the, uh, and the consequences. And then obviously for later on in life, if there's wisdom in the timing, it might be a separate planned conversation later on. Parents, we're in the battle of wills. You must win that battle of wills or your child will grow up to find it impossible to take direction from a teacher or employer and impossible to accept the critique of the Bible at church. You must win that battle. You might say, my teenager isn't responding. My teenager isn't responding to my discipline. My teenager is um, not responding to my Leadership. Sometimes with teenagers it changes, right? It changes in the nature of instruction and discipline, and it changes more towards a coaching conversation. Where parents understandably feel overwhelmed by the anxieties of raising a teenager and the things that they're facing, the potential heartbreak, the potential damage that they do to their life with substances, hypersexuality, incredible amount of pressure socially and vanity and materialism and so on. And though as, as frightening as that can be, it's also an opportunity for us parents to become more prayerful and more dependent. We use our crooked finger a little bit and we use God's long arm of love and conviction a lot. Dependence and trust that God's at work, as frightening and certainly humbling as it is, we learn that kind of dependence. Um, Here's one little equation, a discipline equation that might help you. It's helped me over time, and that is this, that when you're raising, especially teenagers, when you're engaged in discipline and instruction with teenagers in your home, rules without the relationship will bring rebellion, right? That's that 
hard press on that watermelon seed. There goes the rebellion a long way because it's all rules. And then you've got relationship, but no rules. Hyper self-esteem. We don't want to make them feel bad. There's no consequences. They can't possibly have any negative emotions. I have to protect them from all that. So I have all relationship, but I have no rules. You're going to discover some recklessness in those choices and decisions. But if you put together rules, very clear, biblical, heartfelt convictions, no matter whether they're right or whether they end up being wrong, you just that you believe them as a parent, and then you have relationship, full engagement and support and grace and cheering them on and staying highly engaged with them emotionally, this is what the outcome can be. Respect. There's a respectful one. And I know many of you are living with that kind of respect right in, right in your own home. So here's some helpful suggestions, really quick. Um, Four helpful suggestions. Start small. Start small. What do I mean by that? If you have little ones, just start with something. Now, I have this picture in my mind that if I was going to, if I was going to raise my children um, in a Christ-centered home, the way that the Grabowskis talked about, a Christ-centered marriage, and I have a Christ-centered home, that somehow I was going to have to figure out how to plan a Sunday worship service every day for devotions to raise my kid in a Christian home. And you know what my kids don't want in their home? Sunday services every day. Led by Pastor Dad. So you can start small. Read out of a Bible, a children's Bible. There's so many good ones. We give away the child dedication families. We give away the Jesus Storybook Bible. Still makes me teary-eyed when I read that. And I don't know. Just the way it's written is so compelling. Start with that. Um, you can... Do that anytime. You can also pray individually and routinely with small kids. Some of the ways that it's worked out in our house is the bus always comes and there's an always a on the way to school moment and you can work into your routine praying for your child daily, routinely, as they just before they head off to school. Or perhaps when they go to bed, which is again, I'm sure for most of you, there's a routine there, and you can, you can um, work that in. Start small. Prayer, read, the, read a Bible story, and so on. It doesn't have to be more than that. Um, also, this is huge. Speak of your relationship with God more than you speak of your rules that have come from God. Let me say that again. This is hopefully helpful. As a parent, speak more of your relationship with God than you speak of your rules that you've gotten from God. Does that make sense? How many of you would tell me, how many of you willing to, if you think about it, that would have helped you as a child growing up in a Christian home? Would you raise your hand if that would have helped you, that your parents spoke more of their relationship with God? What do I mean by that? Express your own, as a parent, express your own awe of God. Express your own gratitude to God. Express your own contentment and joy in the gospel. Express your own flourishing in the freedom that God has given you. Also, consider this. My goal for my child is not to make them a well-behaved, loyal, and prosperous part of my family, but for them and all of us to be included in God's family. The goal is so much bigger. And one of the ways that we get there is immersing our child into the church family. And it will likely take them further than immersing them in all the um, opportunities that are available to them through school and clubs and sports, which will take them far. But the immersion in the church family can take them so much further. They and you, you need extra partners 
We said this in our child dedication. Extra partners in disciple-making, inspiring, um, need extra disciple-makers in experiences with grace, examples of love and affection for Jesus, routines for building patterns of healthy living, and then also be brave. If you're a parent, be brave enough to turn to someone in your own church family for help, someone in your own immediate family for help. Be brave enough to say, I don't care about what they say about me or think about me. I care mostly about getting wisdom and help as I'm doing a task that requires a lot more people than just who is inside your own home. Be brave about discussing your children's challenges with older Christians, uh, with church family members who you trust, in some, some cases, church leaders. So, some of you need more than that. Some of you need more than helpful suggestions because when you think about parenting long ago, you may realize, you may feel that, um, in fact, perhaps even during this message, you may have been thinking, I really, really blew it. I hope you know I didn't intend to make you feel that way. If you feel that way, God offers a path of reconciliation with your own child. God offers a path of forgiveness and healing with your own children and your own family. He transforms your parenting. And you have the privilege of bringing all your needs before the Father in heaven, even those that reflect your own failure. You can approach Him and you can ask Him for help. And when you're worried or you're fearful or you need to confess sin, He gives us the comfort and forgiveness, saying He is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are contrite in spirit. And we celebrate that contrition. My security rests in my forgiveness. My security rests in my Father's care. It doesn't rest in my child's performance. It doesn't rest in my performance. I am not prone to scold or lecture when my child confesses sin, experiences failure, or somehow, some way, is loaded with anxiety. Instead, I celebrate the ability to go to God in contrition with a contrite heart and lay it all before God the same way I'm able to, I lead my child to. So, if you are thinking to yourself, I don't do that, I didn't do that, I really blew it, I'm estranged from my child, it's a source of great heartache. There's a book I want to recommend to you called A Father's Pursuit of a Prodigal Daughter. It's called Come Back, Barbara. Come Back, Barbara. This is clearly not going to be a book for everybody. But if there's somebody today whose heart is just so wrenched with distance with their adult child, or perhaps even their late teen child, I encourage you to read this book and see this dialogue and interaction between a father and his daughter as they reconcile together and they walk through this together. Would you pray with me? Father, today we need you, we trust you, we look to you. We depend on uh, the Scriptures for instruction and inspiration and insight. We depend on your Holy Spirit to inspire us to do new and different things as as a people who are full of contrast, who do things different. We pray that you'd help us to see it. We pray that you'd inspire and motivate children to be uh, submitted in obedience. We pray that you'd inspire and enable adults to love with instruction and discipline and deep, heartfelt care. And we pray that in the end, God, your reputation would be glorified, would be enhanced. It uh, It would speak well of who you are and what you've accomplished in us, in our hearts. Thank you for the transformation of our hearts. Thank you for the transformation of our homes. 
And we pray today, God, that you would help it, help us just lean and step just another step closer to fulfillment and joy at home. And we pray that you'd bring reconciliation for anyone who's estranged, that you'd lead them towards reconciliation, lead them towards forgiveness. And we pray that you would do it by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we sing together in closing?